you have your Bibles and want to read along with me, we're in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, reading through 26. That's Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. And then we actually start about halfway through verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I, sh- which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is our progress and joy in the faith that we crave this morning. We ask that Christ would be all, Lord, that he would be um, not only in all, but that he would be all to us. Father, we pray that through the power of your word that we would leave feeling as though dying is gain, as though living is Christ. Lord Jesus, may you be big this morning. Pray that your name would be magnified, that your people would be edified. And most of all, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in us, no matter where we are and no matter where we're going. So then we pray. Amen. As the parent of three preschoolers, um, bedtime is quite the event in our house, as you can imagine. It is both the most anticipated and the most dreaded time of the day. Nora, bless her sweetheart, for the most part, goes to bed just fine. The other two... Uh, are not, not quite. We're, we're still working on them. So I've got a, a five-year-old and a four-year-old. And the five-year-old, Judah, needs a nightlight. Uh, he needs a nightlight because he has a hard time turning his mind off. In order to go to bed, he needs to read a book. He needs to draw a picture. He needs to uh, recite a book of the Bible. He needs to call out for a new pair of pajamas. He needs to read another book. And then he needs to go through the whole cycle all over Again, he requires a nightlight. If he doesn't have his nightlight, it is impossible for him to just lay his head down and go to sleep. He has to expire all of his energy. He has a fear of being bored. Our other son also needs a nightlight. Amos, who is four, needs one. Uh, He has a very different reason for needing a nightlight, though. He is scared of the dark. You turn the light off, and he he loses it, man. It's, It's all game over. There's no chance he's going to go to sleep without that light on in his room. Not because he is bored, but because he is scared. But my kids are hardly unique, and nightlights are hardly the only industry profiting from our hunger for both ambition and assurance, from our hunger to avoid boredom and to avoid fear. Entire industries of entertainment and insurance profit 
billions to help us avoid boredom in life and fear and death. Whether Netflix or the NFL to keep you from being bored or whether Glock or Geico to keep you from being scared, you and I crave ambition in life and assurance in death. And we will pay pretty good sums of money to remove these things, boredom and fear from our lives and to replace them with ambition and assurance. And as we saw last week, Paul should have neither of these at this point in his life. He's had his vocation as a church planner taken away. They've locked him in a jail cell. His execution is probable. He is staring in the face of death. Not only that, but he's being maligned by his so-called friends, having his reputation tarnished. So what little ambition he had for a good reputation is even being uh, taken away during this season of his life. And yet, if you noticed, our passage begins with those great five words, Yes, and I will rejoice. You see, Paul has discovered what makes life worth living and death worth dying. And he's about to share the secret with us. So let's jump in this morning. The first thing we see in this passage is that Paul's salvation is guaranteed. Paul's salvation is guaranteed. This is what one pastor calls advanced Christianity. In other words, this is difficult teaching. That Paul can rejoice in all of this suffering, having everything taken away having everything that should cause his rejoicing, having everything that should be his ambition and his assurance. All of it's been pulled out from under him. And yet, he says, yes, I can still rejoice. Not only that, thank goodness, because he's Paul, he's going to explain it for us, right? So he doesn't just leave us with that. I'm rejoicing, end of letter, sincerely Paul, right? He continues on and he says, for... I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So as I was reading this passage, the first question that came up, I circled that and I said, how in the world does he know that? Did did he get a vision from God? Did an angel come and tell him, don't worry, Paul, you're going to get out of prison, no worries. Does he think maybe that because he's an apostle, he has a protected status, he has a a hedge of protection, a a nice green shrubbery around him to keep him from being maligned and ultimately killed? I I don't think so. If you actually look at verse 20, he answers why he can believe this. At the end of verse 20, he says, I know that with now with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored with my body, whether by life or by death. This is why I don't think Paul means here when he says deliverance, He means, I know I'm going to get out of prison, and therefore I can rejoice. Because he says, I can rejoice because Christ can be honored by life or by death. You see, he doesn't pull death off the table when he's talking about deliverance. He says, life or death equals deliverance. Okay, how in the world does that work, Paul? Um, Well, I think one thing that helps us here, deliverance is kind of an awkward translation. It's an interpretive translation. The, The literal word there is salvation. It's the word for salvation. If you read, uh, if you read in the original language, the, the word is, I know that I will be saved. This will turn out for my salvation. Uh, now, I do think there's an element of deliverance there. Absolutely, right? Deliverance, salvation, they can be synonyms. But Paul's talking about more than his physical deliverance here. That's part of it, but he's playing with this word salvation. You say, okay, well, well, Paul's a, Paul's a Christian. How does it, what is he talking about? It's going to turn out for his salvation. He's already been saved, right? We've all read the story in Acts where he, he's walking down the road persecuting Christians and angel comes to him and gives a word and 
actually not an angel, Jesus comes to him and gives him a word. And remember, the scales are over his eyes, and he has to go and hear the gospel. And as he believes it, the scales literally fall from his eyes, and he trusts Jesus. He begins to follow him, not only as a believer in Christ, but ultimately as a missionary and, and church planter. All this is in the past. Paul's already been saved, right? So what's he talking about? This will turn out for my salvation. Is he going to get resaved? Is he going to need, need another baptism? I don't think that's what he means either, right? We know from other scriptures that this is not what Paul's talking about. And so this is where your, your cross-references are helpful in your Bible, okay? So if you look, most of your Bibles are going to have Job chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. And Paul's actually quoting this passage. Track with me here. Paul's quoting this passage word for word where Job, you know the story of Job, right? A man who walked with God and Satan said, you know what, God, if he didn't have all that good stuff, he would quit rejoicing, the only reason he rejoices in you, the only reason he trusts you is because you give him good stuff. You take the stuff away and he'll deny you. And God, with Satan on a leash, says, okay, we'll see. And so Satan begins to torment Job, removes all of the uh, physical joys in his life. Right? His, his children perish. His finances tank. Everything is taken away from Job. And the book of Job is about Job wrestling with this. What does it mean to rejoice in God when there doesn't seem to be a lot of things to rejoice over, right? It's easy to rejoice in God when the pantry and the bank accounts are full and everything is going well. And yet Job is wrestling with this question, what does it look like to rejoice when everything else is empty? What do we have to rejoice in? And in meditating on this, in Job chapter 13, Job says the words, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation. That the godless shall not come before him. You see, even though Job is going through massive suffering, what he's wrestling with in this passage is not that God would deliver him out of the suffering. What he's wrestling with in Job 13 is whether or not he's going to be vindicated, whether or not he's going to be able to stand before God and claim innocence, whether or not he is going to be saved on the last day. This is what Job is concerned about. This is what Job is praying for. This is what he wants, not just deliverance, but he wants salvation. He needs the grounding of salvation, eternal salvation, being right with God. And so literally, he says, even if I die, though he slay me, I will have salvation. Paul quotes this exactly in these verses. Even if I die, I will have salvation. And then Paul helps explain it as well, and then we'll bring it together. In 1 Corinthians 15, 2, we have the gospel, you remember, not just in the past tense. So the gospel is not just what saves us one time, right? The gospel is not just something we believe once and then go about our way, doing whatever it is that we need to do to remain faithful. The gospel is that thing which continues to save us. In other words, the gospel is not just our justification, right? It's not just a, what gives us the right standing before God. It does that. It makes us right with God. It brings, it bridges the gap between us. It is also our sanctification. It is that which makes us more like Jesus every day. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen two, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, and in which you stand now, present tense, and by which you, catch this, are being saved, are right now being saved by the same gospel that saved you on the day you believed, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, Paul's sanctification, 
his being made more like Jesus, his salvation is still happening in prison. He has punched his ticket, right? He is a believer in Christ. By grace, he has been saved through faith. It's not of himself, it's a gift of God, not a result of his works, so that no man may boast. He is reconciled with God because of Jesus' work, and yet God is continuing the work of making him more like Jesus in the prison cell on this day that he's writing this letter. His salvation is happening. And what he's saying is, my salvation is going to happen one way or another, right? Either my salvation is going to happen when I'm delivered and I'm set free from prison, or my salvation is going to happen through sanctification in prison. In other words, he has two options here. Either he is saved from prison, or he's going to be saved by prison. You see, as we pray in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our hurts and pains and aches, as we pray for other Christians, as they are walking through these seasons like Paul's, we pray for both. We pray, Lord, save me, deliver me. We long for this. Deliver me from this trial. Job prayed this. Paul prays this. And we too pray this, believing that God can and will do it. Deliver me from the trial. And with Paul, we pray, Lord, sanctify me, purify me, make me holy, make me more like Christ by this. We have two options as we enter seasons of trial. And Paul says, this is why I can rejoice. Either one is good. One is much more difficult than the other. Paul's not going to pat over that, right? But he says, either one is salvation. There is no third option. Either I'm saved in life or I'm saved in death. Either I'm saved in suffering or I'm saved in deliverance. There is no third way. This is not natural. This is supernatural. Paul acknowledges this when he says, the the way I can do this is not by some uh, massive magnanimity in me, that I'm such a great man and I'm such a great person and God has just given me these special gifts. What does Paul say? is the reason he can do this, the reason he can have this perspective, the reason that he can live out this great life for the sake of the gospel. He says, it comes from outside of me. I know that through two things, your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's joy is fueled by the presence of the Spirit and the prayers of the saints. His joy is fueled by the presence of the Spirit and the prayers of the saints. Languishing in his prison cell, Paul knew that he was not alone. He was bound to his church by their prayers. He was bound to his God by his presence with him. And brothers and sisters, just as Paul was encouraged by and fueled by the prayers of the saints, so too are the saints fueled by, encouraged by your prayers in this room. In the same way that God used the Philippians and their prayers to empower Paul to live out for the sake of Jesus the calling which he had been given, so too do the saints in this room live out the calling that we have been given empowered by your prayers. God uses your prayers to give salvation, both physical and spiritual. So in other words, continue to pray for your lost coworker. God uses your prayers. Continue to pray for your children. God uses your prayers. Continue to pray for our missionaries serving overseas like the Pates and the Malawi team. God uses your prayers. Continue to pray for those in our church who need deliverance. But like Myla Harp or Kayla Mainers, continue to pray, continue to plead and intercede on their behalf because God uses your prayers.
prayers. They are not wasted. Paul says, the reason I'm able to sit in this jail cell with joy is not coming from inside of me. It's coming from outside of me. It's coming from the Spirit of of Jesus ministering to me and the prayers of the saints holding me up. But this is not, as good as this is, this is not the secret. This is the the appetizer. This is the, the nachos, but the steak is coming, right? This is good. This begins to, to fill us. This begins to give us a taste of how Paul could rejoice in a prison cell. But this is not where he grounds ultimately his joy. He says, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. You see, he did not receive a special word from the Lord, I'm convinced. It's a simple process of elimination. And the process of elimination narrows it down to two possibilities. He says them in verse 21. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Either I live or I die, right? There's no, like, halfway measure where I'm going to halfway live and halfway die. He said, if I live, Christ. If I die, gain. Salvation both ways. So you see, Paul has, first, I'm going to flip them, actually, as we unpack them. So the first one I'm going to go with is, to die is gain. This is a miraculous verse, and um, we could spend three hours on it, but we won't. Unless the Spirit moves me. We'll see. But to die is gain. Let's look at that one first. He has assurance in death. So let's take these backward. Jesus is honored when dying is gain. The reward of being face-to-face with Jesus is far better than anything this world has to offer Paul. He says, there is no scenario in which I meet Jesus face-to-face and it's going to be loss. It's always gain. No matter what the world has to offer me, the best day in this earth has nothing to compare with my worst day in glory because I will be face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be no pain. There will be no loss. There will be no mosquitoes. And yet, this is not even close to the best news. This is not even close to the reason why heaven is glorious. It's not simply golden roads and grandma. It is Jesus Christ to see his face, to behold him as he is, not to get glimpses, which we tasted this morning as we worshiped him, right? We get glimpses of the face of Jesus. We get glimpses, as Moses did, of his back. And yet, these will be fulfilled. These will find their terminus, their end point, their fulfillment as we see his face, as we meet our Savior. Revelation 22.4 tells us this clearly. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. Brother, sister, what death holds for you is the face of the living Savior, Jesus Christ. You will see his face. If you are trusting in Christ Jesus, if you have believed in him, the same thing that gives you joy in this life, to behold Jesus, to worship Jesus, will give you joy in the next. (coughs) Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this verse, says, grab some water. Thanks. Thank you. Can you meet me for just a second, Brett?
right. we're good now. Uh, let, me, uh, let me quote Spurgeon while I, uh, while I choke. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on these verses in Revelation, he says, It is his face which they behold. They shall not see the hem of his robe as Moses saw the back parts of Jehovah. They shall not be satisfied to touch the hem of his garment or to sit far down at his feet where they can only see his sandals. No, they shall see his face. You see, the Christian's death means more of what is satisfying him now, Jesus. To die is to gain more of that which gives you true satisfaction now. More and more and more of Jesus. And it is this hope of seeing his face, of death being gained, of us having nothing to lose in death, of us not going to sleep for eternity, of us not being punished by a wrathful God, but instead being welcomed into the arms of a loving Father, us having nothing to fear. It is this which fuels the great lives of Christians. It is this, that, it is this hope that frees us to live. You might have heard someone described before as being too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Have you heard this? He's, he's just too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. In other words, he's you know, just sitting on a rooftop waiting for Jesus to come back and there's like stuff to do now. Um, well, I, I think this is fair for some, right? We, there are people who, uh, who spend too much time in their own heads, right? And not enough time with their hands. And yet I don't think the problem is that they're too heavenly minded. That's not Paul's problem, right? I think instead they're not heavenly minded enough, right? They don't see Jesus clearly enough to know that he affects their lives right now. They don't have the courage of seeing his face and being willing to risk because they know that dying is gain. You see, for Paul and countless Christians after him, being heavenly minded is exactly what has given them the greatest worldly good. Being heavenly minded, knowing that dying was gain, is exactly what freed Paul to live in this life. Being heavenly minded, knowing that Jesus was awaiting him, is exactly what gave Paul the courage to sit in prison and to write, yes, I can rejoice. You can see this not just in Paul, but in countless Christians after him. Uh, One of my favorites is the Romanian pastor, Joseph Son, and I have a quote here from one of his writings. Son was arrested by the Romanian government, and he says, During an early interrogation, I had told an officer who was threatening to kill me, Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, these sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know that I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, We know that Mr. Son would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. So I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided that I was ready to die for the gospel... They were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach wherever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. 
You see, this type of courage is otherworldly. It is not of this world. It is grounded in the same belief that grounded Paul's courage as he sat in a prison cell, that to die is gain. And it's not simply in staring down physical death that this assurance has value for us. It's not simply when we are on the precipice of the end of our lives that we need these verses. Many of us in this room, all of us in this room, will die a thousand deaths in our lives before our final death. This brings us into eternity. See, Son quoted these verses that Jesus says in Matthew sixteen twenty four: Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. The call of the believer is to die to ourselves in a thousand different ways because that is where we find Jesus. It is to die to ourselves daily. It is to die to our preferences. It is to die to some of our dreams and some of our hopes for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. You see, living with dying as gain means regularly risking for Jesus. Living with dying as gain means regularly risking for Jesus. We will experience the death of dreams, the death of our expectations, the death of our preferences, but the message of the gospel says that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Is your Jesus too safe this morning? Do you follow a a safe Jesus who would never require you to die to yourself? When is the last time that you really took a risk for the sake of the gospel? When is the last time that Jesus asked you to do something that you weren't quite sure about and you stepped off the ledge because that was what Jesus had asked you to do? Are your fear... Is your fear of your preferences or dreams being killed or perhaps even your physical life lost? Is that causing you to hedge and hem and haw and say the right spiritual words and show up to the right spiritual places but never risk anything truly for Jesus? To never put anything on the line. To never live as though dying might be game but always to live as though any time I might be called to die it would only be counted as loss. How is Jesus this morning causing you to, calling you to risk your reputation, to risk your finances, maybe even to risk your physical safety? I wonder how many in this room, I wonder how many maybe college students are in this room who Jesus has been drawing and calling to go on an overseas trip, to serve cross-culturally, to take the risk. And as they're sitting here, they're saying, uh, but that might, I might actually get excited about that. God might actually call me to do that full time, and I'm not sure. My parents won't be on board there. And boy, is that not a dying to self as well. I saw a study one time commissioned by the IMB that the number one reason they had had asked missionaries who were going, what is the number one reason that you waited as long as you did? Or what is the number one fear that you have or struggle that you have in going overseas? And you would think many of them would say, well, selling all my stuff or taking my kids or something like that. And um, the majority, it was somewhere around 65, 70% answered, uh, my family did not support me. And I was not sure if if I could do that. It was going to break, especially my parents and my grandparents. It was going to sever our relationship because they they weren't willing to support me. Christian parents. If our children are going to obey these verses, 
if our children are going to live as though life is Christ and death is gain. And it is us that will stand in our way. Woe to us. As though their death is not gain. As though their life does not count. As though these verses do not apply to us and our children. Brothers and sisters, if death is gain, if life is Christ, risk is right. May our Jesus never be too safe. May we live as though life is Christ and death is gain. May we tell, preach the gospel to our children in such a way that we not only talk about it, but show them we actually believe it. And yet, Jesus is not merely Paul's fire insurance. He is not merely Paul's assurance in death. He is also Paul's ambition in life. He is not simply Paul's assurance in death. He is Paul's ambition in life. This is what Paul means when he says to live is Christ. He means to live is to honor Christ. To live is to live for the sake of Jesus' honor. Not my own. Not for my greatness. Not so that I can look clever or respectable but so that Jesus can be magnified and honored in the way that Jesus deserves. Okay, that's, that's great, Paul. How in the world do I do that? Well, again, thankfully, Paul likes to write, and so he tells us. So let's look together. He says in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed. Between the two, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see, Paul is experiencing a tension here. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. I'm between a rock and a hard place. I want to go and be with Christ. That's going to be joy. It's going to be much better than this prison cell. It's going to be much better than being chained to this Roman guard and seeing his face every morning when I wake up, but instead seeing the face of Jesus. That's joy. That's what I want. And yet, I've got this other thing drawing me. It's not simply dying as gain that draws me. It's also to live as Christ that draws me. And so I have this holy tension, Paul says. And he decides at the end, if you caught it, that there's an even more urgent task than him beholding the face of Christ. The progress and joy of his fellow believers. Their progress and joy in verse 25 in the faith. You see, to live in such a way that makes Jesus look valuable is to pour yourself out for others' progress and joy in the faith. It's to pour out your life on behalf of other people's progress and joy in their faith. You see, facing execution, Paul does not point to the hours in the office that he's yet to log Paul does not point to the places around the world that he has yet to vacation to and see. Paul does not point even to the wife and kids that he has yet to have. What keeps Paul running, what keeps his motor going, what keeps him from pursuing only death is gain, but seeing life as Christ is the progress and joy of other people's faith. And let the listener understand, he doesn't say all the stuff at church that's left to do either, does he? Instead, he says, the progress and joy of the faith of the saints. That's what my life's about. Turn with me to Philippians 3, one page over. Paul explains what he means in these verses. 
I can't remember who's preaching this text, but I'm going to steal a little bit of thunder from him, and it'll be okay. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Paul says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So what he's saying there is, I have all the accolades, right? I have, all, I have the trophy case. If anybody needs the trophy case to show their life mattered, if anybody wants to point to stuff they've done, degrees and accomplishments they've accrued to show that their life matters, I've got that. He lists them for you. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I've got the pedigree, come from a good family, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a law, a Pharisee. I was a good person, kept all the rules. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had reached the apex of religious life as a first century Jew. Then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, Paul is seeing that this is not a great life. All of his accomplishments and all of his trophy case did not make his life great because he found something far better. He found something that was infinitely better than being a Pharisee of Pharisees than getting all the academic degrees that he could. He found something far better than being a good and righteous and religious moral person. He found Jesus. And when he found Jesus, all the other stuff was washed away. All the other stuff, as the hymn says, grew strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, the great life is in pouring out yourself for others' progress and joy. The great life is in pouring yourself out for others' progress and joy. So one way we can diagnose ourselves in this question is if you were to be taken from the world today, if you were removed from this place or even removed from the world, whose faith, whose progress and joy in the faith would suffer? Whose progress and joy in the faith would suffer if you were to be removed from your current context? Now, this is not to arrogantly assume that everybody depends on us, right? This is not to put everyone on our backs and say that their faith and joy would all disintegrate if we were gone. But I don't think Paul's full of hubris and arrogance when he says their progress and joy in Jesus is multiplying because of my ministry. My ministry to them, my pouring out my life for these Philippians is contributing to their progress and joy in the faith. If I am taken from this world, their progress and joy in the faith will slow down for a season. It's not that God won't use someone else, but it is to say my life matters for the sake of Christ because these people's progress and joy is increasing because I'm alive, because I'm writing letters to them, because I'm suffering in prison. They're able to see what it is to rejoice in suffering. You see, this is the the question that we can ask ourselves as we're doing a little self-analysis, a checkup of our own life, whether or not we are pouring ourselves out as Paul did for others' progress and joy. It is whose progress and joy would suffer if I left. So you say, okay, that's heavy. I'm not really sure what to do with that at this point. Uh, if, if maybe your answer is zero, maybe your answer is not as many as you would like. Maybe you've got, you've got five and you're saying, I would really like that to be ten. I would certainly like to take the next step, but I really don't know where to go. That's why I'm here. 
I've got a tool for you. Um, I, call, uh, I call it a discipleship tool, which is what it is. Uh, it's called one-to-one Bible reading. So as we ask ourselves, who are our Philippians? Who are those people that we are living for their progress and joy? That if we were taken from the earth today, their progress and joy in the faith, their knowledge and experience of Jesus would take a step back. Where are we needed in people's lives? How are we walking alongside people? One way we can do this is to engage in one-to-one Bible reading. I'm lifting much of this from the work of, of David Helm, who's a pastor. I love it because it's, it's simple, right? You take one or two people and you read the Bible together and you're done. Um, but no, I'm not going to move from this point yet because there's a little more to it than that. Uh, you, you just read the Bible together. Though. I love it because it's not complicated. You don't need any special training. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need experience having done it. You simply read the Bible together and ask a few guided questions of each other. You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to know what the answers are. You look for the answers together, and you dig into the Scriptures together. You can do this with mature believers, or you can do this with a non-believer. You would be shocked at how many non-believers will agree to read the Bible together. If you ask a a non-believing friend, would you read the Bible with me? I guarantee you over 50% of them would say yes if they were asked. You can prepare. You can both go through the questions together and bring your answers, or you can do it right there. You can read it together and go through the questions as you would like to. You could do it at home over coffee or in the break room over lunch. All it requires, all this method requires is a Bible and a person. It requires a Bible and someone else. If you have those two things, you can engage in this discipleship method. So how are you going to do it? Well, you read your passage together. Let's take this passage in Philippians. Um, So I would recommend you read it out loud together, one verse at a time. One of you reads one verse, the other reads another verse. So that would put you reading about four verses each in this passage. You read it out loud, and then you go through these questions of the text. Ask these questions of one another. First, and they have little symbols that help you remember them if you're like me and um, are terrible at remembering. There's not an acronym. Um, Not sure why they went with symbols instead of acronyms. Maybe they were assuming that even those of us who have trouble reading can at least look at the pictures, like Dr. Seuss. Uh, So you see the, the light bulb, and you ask, what stands out to you in this passage? So as I'm reading this passage in Philippians, I say, what stands out to you? And uh, the person answers what stands out to them, and I read it, and I say, you know what stands out to me? The word joy and rejoice comes up a lot. Paul seems to be really interested in people's joy, rejoicing, for their progress in joy in the faith. That word joy really stands out to me as I read it. You go next to the question mark. What is a question that this passage brings up in your mind? What is something this passage makes you ask? My, my friend shares what this passage made him ask. I share, you know what? I read that word, ashamed. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. What does Paul mean by ashamed? Why would he be ashamed? I'm gonna, you're, you're wishing I would have covered that now. Sorry, that got cut on the, on the sermon floor. You'll have to come, uh, come to my office. We can talk about it. Um, what does this passage mean that Paul's ashamed? Why, why would Paul be ashamed? I'm not sure. Let's, let's look into that this week and come back with our answers together on why we think Paul is using that word ashamed in this passage. We move to the cross. What does this passage show you about Jesus? How can you understand Jesus better? How can you get to know Jesus more deeply through reading this passage? My friend answers, and I say, you know, as I read, I see that he's worth my life. Jesus is worth my life and my death. He's worth everything I've got. Move next to an arrow. Lest we only live in our heads, we now apply it to our hands. What is this passage going to require me to do this week? How is this passage going to change my life? This week, how is this passage going to change your life this week? 
So as I've done this, I say, this passage is, has moved me. I'm going to schedule a lunch with a potential disciple this week. I want to go through this method with someone else. And as I've read this, I've seen that um, my life is, is being poured out, but I'm only pouring out drops. And Jesus is asking for the whole faucet to be turned on. I want to spend more time and more energy and more labor on behalf of others. So I'm going to schedule a lunch with somebody and ask if they'll go through and read the Bible with me together. And then finally, if you get here, the quote bubble is the last one. And all this, all this question asks is, who can you share this with this week? Who is it that you're going to share what you've learned and what we've gone through with? Who can you maybe ask to, uh, to lunch? Who can you maybe in a conversation over the water cooler at work say, you know, I was reading the Bible and I, I saw this and it was just really intriguing to me. Who can you share this with this week? And I write down this person I'm getting lunch with. That was my arrow, right? My arrow is I'm getting lunch with somebody. That's who I'm going to share it with. Maybe you, can, maybe you only go through one of these. You study one passage for five weeks, and you go through one uh, picture a week where you go through and you say, what's the light bulb this week? All right, let's only focus in on the light bulb. Let's make some observation on what stands out to us, and let's talk through those. Maybe you only have 15 minutes. You're on your lunch break at work. Your boss is a hard taskmaster. Uh, he lets you go get something from the vending machine, and he's right back in getting you back to work. You've got 15 minutes. You could do this method in 15 minutes. Go through one a week, one picture a week. Meet with your friend. Maybe you've got an hour over coffee. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and the kids are going to be running around and you might have to close the Bible for a while, right? And go uh, take the switch out and start, you know, don't recommend that method. But um, anyway, um, so whatever it is, this is flexible, right? This is flexible. It allows you to pour into people's lives at your own pace and whatever season you're in, you can do this. You say, Pastor, I don't have time for that. To which I say, well, what are you spending your life on? To live is Christ. It may be high time to cut some things out so that you can begin to pour your life into others. You say, oh, Pastor, that sounds kind of awkward. I don't know how I'm going to ask somebody that. I say, well, it's time to risk, brother or sister. To live is Christ. Imagine the impact in our church, in our community, if 150 people began doing this with one or two other people once a week. Imagine the impact if God's word, and not only God's word, but God's people began to multiply readers of God's word and obeyers of God's word. And those began to multiply and go out readers of God's word and obeyers of God's word. They would say, what have you done with Ovilla, Texas? What have you done with Waxahachie? You have infiltrated this city with your teaching. May it be so. That's our prayer. Who is the spirit this morning moving you to reach out to? So as we conclude, I, I love how the passage begins with joy. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. And it ends also with joy. He says in verse 25, I do this for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, brothers and sisters, God is in the business of joy. God is in the business of taking your delight and your affections, your hunger for freedom from fear, for freedom from boredom, your hunger for ambition and assurance, and giving them to you tenfold through Jesus Christ. God is in the business of increasing and multiplying your joy, and yet that is so hard to believe, not just today, but it sure is hard to believe on Monday, that God is in the business of my joy. And if it's hard to believe on Monday, it's much harder to live out on Tuesday, 
I might believe it on Monday, but then Tuesday comes around and I get busy and things begin to rock and sway and here I am again. You see, we need more than catchphrases. To live as Christ and to die as gain makes a great bumper sticker, makes a great sign at Hobby Lobby, but since the Garden of Eden, our hearts cry out instead to live as me and to die as scary. You see, sin breaks that in us which knows that we are designed to live for Christ, which knows that if we are trusting in Jesus, that death is gain. And instead, Satan whispers into our ear and says, no, 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 that's not, that's not to live as you and to die is scary. Don't believe that. You see, we need something more than bumper stickers to fight against that lie. We need Jesus himself. We need Jesus himself. We need to see him. We need to behold him. We need the spirit of Jesus Christ. And so as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, this is a time where we express our need of Jesus. This is a time when we look at the body and blood of Christ poured out and broken for us. We remember that in his death, he did not die for his own gain, but he died for our gain. He died in order that we may, be, we may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes through the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. As we take the supper this morning, we proclaim as we eat and drink that we are trusting in Jesus. That Jesus is our assurance and he is our ambition. If you have never trusted Jesus and professed that publicly by being baptized, let me encourage you not to partake in this this morning because that's what this proclaims as you take of the symbolic body and blood of Christ, which you're proclaiming is that I have and want to continue to trust Jesus. So if you have not done that yet, I would encourage you to use this time as a time of reflection and prayer. Use this time as a time to ask Jesus to make himself real to you, to ask Jesus to forgive you of the sins which keep you from living for him and dying for him. To ask Jesus to take his rightful place as Lord in your life to give you this great life of living as Christ and dying as gain this morning. And after you do that, I would encourage you to come and speak with me or another elder who will be standing in the back as we sing our final song after we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. And if you are a baptized believer, I encourage you to reflect on Jesus' death and its gain for you. His death has given us assurance and ambition. Jesus spent his life for our joy. The question that we meditate on now is how are we spending ours? Pray with me. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We are, I am, blown away, Father, by the grace that you've given. Lord, you have taken me, a, a sinner who, who hungers to live for myself, Lord, one who seeks comfort and my preferences, my own respect and glory. And yet, Lord, you have taken me and, and given me the life that you gave Paul. You've given me the assurance and the ambition that you gave Paul. And Lord, we say together this morning that we want more. Lord, we don't want to rest where we are. We don't simply want fire insurance, Lord. We want to live the type of life that Paul lived. We want to live the type of life that Pastor Son lived. Lord, wherever you've placed us, not all of us will be 
missionaries. Not all of us will be pastors. And yet, Lord, you have a calling for each one of us to risk wherever you've placed. And so I pray that you would apply this truth to each heart in this room as we take the supper this morning. Open our eyes to see Jesus clearly as worthy of all praise and glory and honor. To see what he's done for us, see what he's done for the world. And Lord, move our hearts to worship him anew. Most of all, Lord, we want to see his face. Let us see the face of Jesus. We love you, Lord. In his name we pray.